HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Juniors. You have not really lived until you've had cheesecake at Juniors. For more information, visit juniorscheesecake.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, a weekly conversation about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA UCLA Law School, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. And joining me today as co-host in the studio is Evan Hanser. He's the chef at Egg Restaurant in Williamsburg, and he's been with us here before as co-host. Welcome back, Evan. Glad to have you. Thank you very much, Kim. The issue of labor in the food system has received more national attention in recent years, but while there may be growing awareness among some parts of the customer and consumer base of the need to treat people that produce our food more fairly, our next guest's reporting demonstrated how desperately greater attention is needed. Richard Morosi's series on Mexican farm laborers for the Los Angeles Times exposed in devastating detail the labor system that many U.S.-based retailers rely on for Mexican produce. The series documented some substandard living conditions for the workers who sometimes lacked access to clean water or functioning toilets and were subject to exploitive wage practices. The series was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2015, and I am pleased to welcome reporter Richard Morosi to the program. Hi, Rich. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me on. We're very glad to have you. So I wanted to start with your background. You've reported extensively from the U.S.-Mexico border, covering everything from cartels to immigration issues. What first brought the farm labor issue to your attention? Well, at first, it came uh, through kind of a serendipitous route. I'd been doing stories on immigrants, and, uh, you know, through my travels in Mexico, I had run across some labor camps and fields where I had been told children were working, and that kind of piqued my interest. And as I dug into the story, uh, I kept it, it revealed um, even more abusive, exploitative conditions that uh, that I even imagined, um, and it went far beyond just uh, child labor, which was mainly just restricted in uh, chili peppers and smaller growers at the big, huge um, uh, agribusinesses that supply much of our winter produce. 
um, there were labor camps lining these roads across Sinaloa and Baja California. And these were kind of hidden worlds. Uh, journalists hadn't accessed these areas very often in the past. We, had, we managed to get inside a lot of these labor camps and document some of the conditions in there which were slave-like. How do you begin that process? <clears throat> well, <laughs> there's no set way. You, you, you know, these places are pretty isolated down long dirt roads and cartel areas of Mexico. Um, so you go in there and you try and talk to these folks, usually outside, but we managed to go inside. Um, I was accompanied by Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Donald Bartletti. Usually we would get half an hour to an hour inside the camp before the camp overseers knew we were there and, and kicked us out. But in that time, we were able to gather up a lot of information and document a lot of the abuses going on. And then later, we linked some of these uh, labor camps to growers who supplied America's biggest retailers, including Safeway and Walmart, and also big um, restaurant chains. So tell us in a little bit more detail, you know, the daily life in the camps, what 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 it looked like for the people who were living there? Well, these are Mexico's poorest people. They're usually indigenous people who are bused in from hundreds of miles away to work in these labor camps, usually three to six months at a time. Uh, they live in these low-slung, tin-shacked um, uh, warehouse-like dorms. And it's work six days a week from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m., um, they generally get uh, two bowls of lentil soup a day, um, a kilo of tortillas, um, and you know, work in the fields or um, in the, the packing sheds. Um, most people don't realize 50% of the tomatoes that we eat in this country now come from Mexico. Uh, the Mexican growers are very good at growing good quality produce and getting here on time on our store shelves but the laborers would complain hey you know all this effort goes to pamper produce and they live you know hardly better than animals what happens is that in these uh, in these um, work dorms uh, often they don't have beds they'll sleep on bare floors right um, so in addition to not having enough food they're cold in the winter and then in the summertime they're really really hot because the the walls are made of uh, corrugated iron and it's and it's without insulation, so it gets very hot in the summer, very cold <clears throat> in the winter times. And there's uh, also limited access to water. They have to bathe in irrigation canals a lot of times. They have to do their laundry in irrigation canals, um, which creates you know food safety issues as well as uh, hygiene issues for the uh, right for the laborers. You describe uh, the laborers, many, including many indigenous people, and coming from far away. How does that start? Like, how do you become a farm laborer in Mexico? Well, usually these folks live in tiny mountain villages, and they hear ads in, along the radio. You know, usually they're sing-songy, happy ads saying, come work, make a lot of money, go to Sinaloa. And come back, you know, with a lot of pesos in your pockets. And these people, with limited opportunities, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll get their, you know, real rucksack and and march and walk or take buses down to the little gathering areas in these small hubs in these mountain towns and board buses. And they'll travel 500 miles up to the big agribusiness businesses, which are concentrated mainly in the western state of Sinaloa, also Sonora in Baja, California. 
and um, they'll spend three to six months there. What I saw and what I thought was the most alarming thing was these camps <clears throat> are basically, you know, ringed with barbed wire, um, which limits their movement. And another practice that limits <laughs> their mobility is the fact that they're not paid often until the end of the three months. So they're essentially trapped in these places. They can't leave because they don't have, even if they wanted to leave, they don't have money to leave. Right. Now, that is in direct violation of Mexican federal law that says they have to be paid weekly. They're not paid weekly. Um, so often you'll show up at these camps and these people are begging you for money, or on their days off they're going to work side jobs so they can, you know, earn four or five dollars to drink a beer or, or, or get a little or tortilla or something, right? Do they have any way of knowing their rights? You know, these are mostly come from regions where people have limited access to education or representation. And though a lot of the younger folks um, have more education than the older folks, they don't have nowhere to turn. There's, they're, they don't chan- they're not represented by any folks. Um, there, there's no you know, labor attorneys out there looking to um, organize or make collective actions against these agribusinesses. Um, these people are folks with meager resources and limited access to, to representation. So they're exploited. They're exploitable, so they're exploited. So one of the things that comes across in your reporting is just this incredible portrait of the children who are involved uh, in, in working, which I know is just one aspect of the supply chain there. But, you know, you're telling particularly one story of a 12-year-old girl, I think. I think she's 12, and her name is Alejandra. Alejandra or Alejandrina? Alejandrina. Alejandrina, yes. So can, you, can you tell us uh, about her and her daily life? Well, Alejandrina came from a small village in Guerrero, and she had been in, through school until she was about nine years old, and then went embarked on a nomadic journey across Mexico, just chasing the chili pepper harvest from Sinaloa through Guanajuato and up through Chihuahua. So she hadn't gone, received regular schooling for years by the time I met her when she was, I think, 12 years old. And, you know, her life was one of tremendous hardship, uh, living in these fall-down shacks with her extended family and getting up with the sunrise and heading to the chili pepper fields, working till noon, and getting finally something to eat. She was always very hungry at noon when the food truck would come, and then working till the sun came down and and then heading home and doing that every day for six days a week. And um, with really no future, no opportunities, and uh, very, very little hope for improving her living situation. I mean, one of the things in the story that's so compelling is the photos. You talked about your your colleague that you reported with, but because you can see in these pictures there's still this joy, this childlike joy that mm-hmm. comes across her face in different circumstances, despite the hardships, you know, just makes it so um, accessible, I think, uh, her humanity, really. And I wanted to just ask you about that relationship, because you said you did um, track her for over a year, and if you're still in touch with her, and how her family's doing. Yeah, it's hard keeping uh, in touch with her. She, her labor was controlled by a uh, field boss, and that was my only contact. And these people are nomads. They're, they're, they're just constantly on the move throughout Mexico, and they're poor. And, um, you know, if you lose, if they don't charge their phones, you pretty much lose access. 
and uh, tracking them down is very difficult. Uh, the last time I checked in with them, they were in this region in southern Sinaloa um, called uh, Esquinapa area where there's huge chili pepper fields. That's where America gets a lot of its chili peppers. And um, she's probably there right now. They're, they're usually there in the, in the winter time for several months. Um, but like I said, it's, it's very, very difficult um, keeping in touch with these folks. And, and heck, I mean, she was 12 years old. She's 13 now, I believe. Um, she's, a, you know, in, in, in life here, if she was here, she'd be a normal schoolgirl. She was very bright. Um, she had ambitions of being a school teacher, um, but even in her limited circumstances, she made the best of it because she was one of the fastest pickers in, among her group of kids, right? Everybody looked to beat her, and, but she would always beat them picking, you know, several 30 or 40 pounds sacks of, of a day, right? So uh, the more sacks you pick, um, the more money you earn, and she'd buy little trinkets once in a while, okay? get a little lipstick or anything, you know, to brighten her days. And that, uh, that motivation to really, you know, to pick faster and make more money, does that actually offer any potential path out of this situation? Um, or is it kind of a futile pursuit? No, I mean, it's, not gonna, it's all going to get you with a few extra yeah. pesos at the end of the day. You know, it's not a meritocracy, right? You know, right. <laughs> and there's very few female field bosses, none actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, her potential is it's, <laughs> is, is limited in that in that field. You basically, there there is no fast track. I mean, in that society uh, with these indigenous folks, she'll probably be married, uh, you know, by 17, 18, and start having children. And a lot of these women, you know, uh, they're, they're pregnant. They're out working working the fields and they have their kid and then a month or two they're right back in the fields with their kids strapped to their backs you know uh you see a lot of infants you see a lot of babies out there in the field in their diapers crawling through the mud it's very sad and and can you you also did um delve into some of the health aspects of being in these conditions and the the exposures that the laborers experience and the lack of uh access to medical care how did that impact the people who you got to speak with? I think, I mean, for, for a lot of these folks like Alejandrina, the greatest danger is traveling. Um, uh, there was one photo that Don Bartletti took was amazing, you know, 18, 19 people strapped to the back of an open bed truck, you know, going down freeways 50, 60 miles an hour. Traffic accidents are common um, throughout Mexico during the harvest season. It's scary how many people die or are injured, you know, hundreds yearly. Alejandrina's family was touched by it. Her relatives were on a truck that flipped over, and the day I visited, you know, four of them were strewn on the ground, you know, uh, on beds, um, recovering from broken ribs or cracked heads and with very little uh, medical care, right? Uh, These people have nowhere to turn to. So that that's a major issue, uh, the lack of safe transport to and from the fields. And also, the bathing in uh, irrigation canals creates a whole host of other issues. Lots of kids get skin infections. I, I saw it all, all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. Pe- like pesticide-related or fungus-related, or you know, just it's the lack hard of to sanitation. it's hard to pin down, and I didn't have to. I didn't have time uh, yeah. to, to look into that. Uh, but probably some of the experts I talked to said, yeah, it could be pesticide-related. Um, you know, a lot of these irrigation canals, you, you'll see, you see, you can see water snakes. You know running through them so there's they can get bit i mean there are 
rodent infestations in a lot of these this slum housing where they live. Um, there was all, all sorts of hazards. So um, I want to just ask you one more question, and then we'll take a short break. But sure. how, you know, the, the trust aspect of getting to talk to folks when you have these, these barbed wire enclosures and, you know, the kinds of um, lack of resources that, that they had or fear that they may have been living with, how, how would you be able to engage them, or did you find that they were eager to get their stories out? You know, these people, no one talks to these folks. No one talks to these folks about the hardships. So I show up, I tell them I'm a reporter from El Norte, right? <laughs> and they just open up. I mean, you just can't get many of them to shut up, right? <laughs> and because, and, but one guy said it all. I mean, and they say the most pithy things, these, these folks. One guy working at this one camp in Sinaloa, young man who said, um, you know, living on two bowls of lentil soup a day and working 10 hours a day was very trying. And he says, hey, we come to this camp fat and we leave skinny, he says. Mm-hmm. I mean, that says it all. You know, these people <laughs> are starving. Yeah. Right? Um, and, uh, and they go on and on and on about their hardships. It's, uh, some of them express a little fear about having their names in the paper, but most of them don't. And um, it's not like they're, they're you know, uh, they see reporters or talk to reporters or talk to anybody who cares about their lives every day. You know, these people are, are very willing to explain what's going on uh, in their daily lives. So I want to take a short break and then come back and talk more about the bigger system, which you uh, explained a lot, and some of the things that have happened since your reporting about a year ago. Sure. Let's play a game. If I say three words, let's say Brooklyn classic food. You tell me what comes to mind. I'll give you a second. If the answer wasn't juniors, you lose the game. You can't possibly be a Brooklyn foodie or a foodie at all for that matter and not know about juniors. Founded by Harry Rosen in 1950, juniors landmark restaurant is known as the home of New York's best cheesecake. Real talk, you have not fully lived unless you've had Junior's Cheesecake. The original location in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue is still thriving, or you can check them out at recent landmark additions in New York's Grand Central Terminal or in the heart of the theater district on Broadway and Times Square. Check out their first restaurant outside of New York at the Fox Tower Hotel at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. It's not just cheesecakes. They've got steak, seafood, sandwiches, salad... Everything you would possibly need to complete an authentic New York dining experience. Don't be embarrassed next time somebody asks you if you've been to Junior's. Visit juniorscheesecake.com for more information. And we're back on Eating Matters with Rich Morosi of the Los Angeles Times talking about farm laborers in Mexico. So, Rich, we were just talking about during the break how kind of powerfully the stories um, you were able to access there are, and kind of from a journalist, journalistic perspective, the, the images that you're able to pair with those. Do you see, I guess, what sort of reach do you see those having in, in Mexico or in the U.S.? Um, 
I mean, obviously there are many readers of the LA Times who, who saw that article, and I'm sure were deeply impacted by it, but what's the Mexican perspective on the situation? How, how well known is, is this sort of situation uh, among other you know, people in Mexico? Well, the story about abusive conditions amongst Mexican farm laborers is not a story in Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not a story here. Everybody knows these folks don't have uh, good lives, and they, they live miserably. The reason it's a story is because it's directly related to the supply chain to America's biggest retailers, mm-hmm. who claim to have social responsibility, uh, social responsible supply chains, mm-hmm. right, and practices, and spell them out in detail on their corporate websites, okay? So to me, it's more of a story of corporate malfeasance and corporate deceit than it is really about abusive living conditions because, you know, um, if this had been a story about poor Mexicans working for uh, to produce produce for other Mexicans, it's not a story for the LA Times and that wouldn't get much reader interest in the United States. The, reason, the only reason I think this story resonated is because it's linked to the everyday um, eating practices of Americans, right? The, the, the produce that they pick ends up on our store shelves, right? And we're led to believe that these people are treated responsibly in a lawful manner. But I found evidence otherwise. Yeah, and it seems to align kind of pretty neatly with the way uh, American consciousness around good food or food in general has has lined up where there's a, a great concern about the way food is grown and certain standards about the, the produce itself, but not a lot of attention paid to the, the labor behind it. You mentioned, I think, uh, you know, examples of uh, inspectors from the U.S., from corporations checking in on, on food safety and food quality, but really ignoring these labor issues. Uh, w- what is there to be done about, about that? Well, I mean, after the story came out, the Mexican government formed this big uh, social responsibility alliance of trade groups and pledging to improve the lives of a million farm workers, right? Um, Walmart said they were going to uh, bolster their reforms, and some other retailers said the same, right? But they can talk all they want what's going on on the ground. Um, I've got some evidence that things are improving um, and other evidence that it really isn't improving much at all, but it's hard to tell because there's no regular oversight. You know, there's no regular media attention given to these issues. My understanding is that uh, in a lot of these labor camps across Mexico, they've beefed up security, so it's not easy for outsiders to really gain access anymore, right? So it's hard to know exactly what's going on and if they're following through on their pledges. Um, that said, folks in the industry insist that things are getting better um, and that the series um, was really uh, a game changer for them, that uh, they, they can't afford to um, marginalize or look bad with consumers uh, in this day and age because consumers really, really do care about these issues. That's one of the things that they're very sensitive about, and we're really shocked, actually, uh, in speaking with some, some growers and some retailers that these issues have resonance with consumers. They really care, especially younger consumers. Um, folks at Driscoll's Berries who were hit with a, a berry strike in Baja, California, um, uh, they said, yeah, um, consumer behavior really affects their sales. And uh, so they've been trying to institute reforms and better working conditions at the growers that they are partnered with in Mexico. Were there any organizations that really picked up your work? Uh, you know, obviously it's your, your reporter and your role ends at a certain point. Were there people who uh, took this on to make it an advocacy campaign or priority and are still doing that work? It's hard. In Mexico, um, sure, there are unions 
there are some indigenous leaders and fledgling union groups, but it's really difficult to organize these folks down there because they come from very poor regions. Um, they're not a local workforce. They're desperately poor. Um, and the agribusinesses are extremely wealthy uh, owners and politically connected, right? And there's a history of squashing labor movements in Mexico, sometimes violently. So, um, no, there hasn't really been a really uh, strong effort in some of these areas to organize or address these issues. Um, that said, in Baja, California, there is a labor movement forming, um, one of the strongest in, in, in recent years, in, in decades, actually. Um, interestingly, the leaders of that movement were people who had spent time working in the fields in the United States and had been exposed to the United Farm Workers and their, their organizing practices. And also the, the Immokalee uh, group out there um, Right, CIW, right. So they're kind of adopting those methods and things that they've learned in the U.S. and, 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 uh, and trying to apply it in Mexico, and they've had some success. Um, that strike led to a historic increase in wages, first in decades, for farm workers in Mexico. Um, what did companies tell you about how this could happen when they had certain pledges? Or, you know, were there, did they say that there are barriers, there are reasons they can't? guarantee this or you know what were the what was the uh response when you were exposing what was going on in some of the supply chains well for, for the most part most retailers didn't comment wouldn't comment or said that they would just gave vague statements about being concerned and that they were going to review their supply chain practices right walmart to their credit was the only one who really gave me detailed responses they have a social responsibility team on the ground in mexico right apparently so um, they were in some of the camps that I was in and saw the same conditions that I was in. So it raises questions about whether or not what, what they're doing or, or whether they're even uh, enforcing these rules that they have. Um, you talk to the growers down there, and they say that, yeah, Walmart is there, and they're very strict, but I didn't see evidence in a lot of these camps uh, that they were enforcing their own standards, right? Um, they said they're going to step up enforcement, but they've been very vague about how they're going to do that. And you talk to growers down there who want to do the right thing, and they'll just tell you, you know, if we improve living conditions and working conditions for our folks, um, we can't contract with what we can't get hit Walmart's price point. Right. right. Yeah, so seemed- uh, they say, well, you know, these improving living standards is incompatible with the Walmart model, is what they say. And some of them, with some of the better. Uh, reputation for treating their workers don't sell to Walmart. They just they they can't keep prices low enough for them. So there's this um, conflict there, um, and, and Walmart is you know they're not they're not really been open to addressing that. Yeah, and so how how is that addressed? Does that come from consumers uh, kind of making it clear that they're they're willing to pay more or or desire to pay more for you know for these conditions to improve? Uh, does it come from the company is just taking that step step up, and do you have a sense of what that cost impact would be to improve conditions? You know, to a, even some sort of reasonable yeah. level. There haven't been many surveys, but some of the surveys say to, you know, to raise their um, their wages just a little bit. You know, would run would increase consumer costs like sixty cents a year, mm-hmm. really nothing. You, if you buy about a two dollar a pound uh, packet of, of tomatoes, right? Mm-hmm. Less than half a cent of that is going to the worker that picked mm-hmm. it. Okay, so there's uh, 
plenty of room to improve their salaries without without really increasing the price for consumers. Um, and um, but it's hard to. Um, uh, I mean, they sweat, you know, in the produce, which is a volume market, uh, it's a volume business, they sweat every penny, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a margin, right? So that's going to affect their profit margins, and and they, they put, you know, they, they don't want to increase costs in any way, even if it, if it just amounts to a couple of pennies more for, for workers down there. I mean, the average, they make... Six to eight dollars a day. A day. <clears throat> is is that the model that the the uh, Abiski groups in Baja California are adopting now? Because it sounds like the CIW approach, where their their goal was just to get you know a penny more per pound for tomatoes, and and to show how big of an Im- impact that would make on workers' lives. Yeah, uh, is that kind of a similar approach being taken by those groups that are being organized? No, by former no, workers? they can't. I mean, the Coalition of Makali Workers, as good as they work, they do in the United States. You know. Uh, there's no sign that they're going to be going down to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're busy expanding their their labor movement um, north, right? But uh, in Mexico, it's hard, and, 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 and it's hard to organize in Mexico. Um, it you know, requires a lot of time, and a lot of folks, basically, I'll tell you straight up, you know, they're scared of the potential violence, the specter of violence, right? I mean, I know executives from these big retailers don't go to these regions. That's one of the reasons they don't really keep tabs on their supply chains, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't go down. They're, they're, they fear violence. They fear the crime situation in a lot of these regions, so they don't go. Your reporting indicated that there had been a real increase in these exports from Mexico in the last decade. What led to that, and what, what are the... Um, is, you know, is trade a role? Is there a role for American government, and is our trade system affecting this? No, I mean, largely consumer demand. We want fresh produce year-round, right? And uh, Mexico has filled a need, right, um, especially for the winter produce. But um, and they've been, they got into this big time 15, 20 years ago, but in recent years have, have expanded dramatically in part um, because they've developed really, really good technology and grow, growing technology adopted from Spain and, and the Dutch and Israelis, and, and they've built these huge industrial-scale complexes that are visible. They're so big, they're visible from space, these big greenhouse complexes, right? Mm. So they're able to mass-produce these uh, vegetables at a very good price and very good quality, right? And um, now it's not just a winter pro- product, it's, it's year-round. Um, and it's not just tomatoes, it's cucumbers, it's bell peppers, it's, it's melons, it's grapes, it's everything. So it's become a really, really big business, and, and in many ways, a success story uh, for Mexico, right? Yeah. Which is pushing their, you know, this economic miracle and as an export, emerging export powerhouse. And so that that being such a huge part of uh, you know our produce imports and our you know diets as American consumers, and it sounds like change is is unlikely to come from inside Mexico. What what can you know any average American consumer do? If anything, you know, maybe this is just a, a, a loss of a situation, well, but to, to affect some sort of change in it. Uh, you know, apparently what works, the, the, the one, like you said, the change doesn't come from within Mexico. But believe me, these Mexican growers are very, very sensitive to the U.S. market, mm-hmm. right, and supply and demand here. If, if the perception that they're going to lose business because consumers are going to shy away from that, they will change. Believe me, that's the... the I found out mm-hmm. the U.S. consumer has tremendous leverage over what happens in Mexico if they organize and what 
simply going into your local uh, supermarket and asking the produce guy, hey, where, where does this produce come from? Mm-hmm. What are your supply chain um, standards? How do you enforce them, right? You ask those questions. I mean, you'll see nowadays especially much of the, t- if you look at, go to the tomato bin, mm-hmm. pull a tomato, it's going to say product of Mexico, right? Go, you know, query the manager there. Hey, where does this come from? Who produced it? Which part of Mexico did it come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see your standards. Are you enforcing these standards? Apparently that has an impact. <clears throat> um, and especially uh, from uh, the, the, the younger consumers apparently are very much attuned to this. And really, if they act collectively, what I've learned is they can really, really move markets. Yeah. Uh, it, that's one thing I've learned out of all this, especially in the Baja strike. That really, really apparently um, hurt Driscoll's, um, which is the world's largest berry distributor, and they have big operations down there. Um, ironically, they're one of the better producers down there who treat their people uh, much better than, than the local Mexican growers do. Um, but they were targeted by the labor movement because they're the most vulnerable. They have a brand to protect, right? Yeah. So Driscoll's um, was hit hard, apparently, by this boycott threat. Though they were never actually formally boycotted Driscoll's, it took on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. So Driscoll's pressured the Mexican government to end the strike, which led to the biggest uh, uh, salary increase in recent Mexican history, right? And Driscoll's executives have taken the lead in this big social responsibility alliance to kind of drag their, you know, their colleagues, uh, their their fellow growers into the future and, and treat their people better, right? And of course, they have an interest. Driscoll's has a big uh, interest in, in improving situation for everybody because they're the ones who were smeared when when in these labor movements rise, right? Yeah. Well, it's nice. It's nice to think that there's room for some success story in all of this. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's ongoing, and they caution it's going to take time. Things move really slowly, but also that can be just be an excuse. I mean, if they mm-hmm. wanted to change it, they could do it overnight, right? I mean, as a result of my reporting, apparently a lot of these hundreds of beds were distributed, and they got rid of these these high-priced company stores and replaced them with at-cost company stores where people didn't. You know the laborers wouldn't fall into debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know if we got if we really covered that, but you you reported on people having to buy at these these stores that were overpriced. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 oh, they price everyday items to double, triple, quadruple the price of a, of a neighborhood store. So a lot of the money they earn just goes right back to the company, right? Okay. Um, and they leave owing money, or they can't leave sometimes mm-hmm. because their debts are too deep, <laughs> and they're prevented from leaving until they pay off the debt. So it's just this cycle. It just comes in and goes right back, uh, right back out. Yeah. But so, apparently they've, they've closed down some of these, and they're putting in um, other company stores that are government-run and sell the pro- those items at cost. For you, as you just you personally, having had that, some of the outcomes that did come from this, and in some of your follow-up stories, having workers attest to some of the improved conditions. What's your own reflection on that? How does that you know, feel for you as a reporter? Well, the thing is, it's hard to really get a sense of how widespread this is. Uh, you, you feel heartened when you call and you say things are getting better, but that was months ago, and it's hard to check in with these people. I haven't been to San recently, and I don't know if I have any plans or to go there or any other places. Um, 
to see if these pledges are actually being acted on. Because you wouldn't be a good reporter if you didn't have this complete skepticism and need to to verify this. The the more I work on these issues and and the more I travel down there, I mean, uh, all of these government corporate pledges don't mean anything, you know, often. Often it's just meant to buy time, okay, you know, uh, to get people to just back off, right? And unless people are out there scrutinizing, these pledges, they, they, they'll just fall back to their old ways, right? Um, and that's a common problem, especially in Mexico, where there isn't a lot of media scrutiny. And the, um, so the, the state of journalism down there, my profession, is, is very weak right now, and they're, they're, they're under siege, really. Uh, journalists don't have the time. <clears throat> journalists are being killed. Right. <laughs> journalists self-censor. And the, to go into these labor camps and take on these big, powerful agribusinesses, you know, sometimes the editors don't want that, or it requires a lot of resources to tell the bigger picture and how these agribusinesses are, are linked to the big U.S. supply chains, right? So um, it, it's it's complex reporting that requires a lot of resources and time, and unfortunately, um, a lot of Mexican journalists uh, can't don't have the resources to pull it off, yeah. though they have the they have the will and the passion, but. Mm-hmm. The, the reality just keeps them from reporting it in depth. The um, I do want to encourage people to read the series, and also you referenced a few times uh, the photography and videography by Don Bartletty, and some of the images really are stunning, so I'd encourage people to check out the series if you haven't. And I want to thank you, Rich, for joining us today. We're really glad to have you on. Hey, no, it was great. And thanks for, uh, thanks for your interest and thanks for sharing it. Evan, thanks for joining us, co-hosts. That's our show for today. Our show co-producer is Jenna Liute and our intern is Austin Brunyarski. The show music is by Tim Archer. Thanks to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.